Hello Dungeonistas and welcome to the Rugby Dungeon. Thank you for listening, thank you for subscribing, thank you for following us on Twitter at jbeardmore, at the Rugby Dungeon and of course as Egg Chasers at Rugby Podcast. If you have the time, please go and leave us a review on iTunes. I tell you every week it's really important and it is important so please go and do that. You can also find us on our Facebook page. Yes, that's right, we've got no Facebook Live this week because the idiots at Sky can't send out a internet router so i'm doing all this interview on a phone hotspot which cost me a small fortune so thanks for that sky today i've got glenn delaney glenn has had an incredibly interesting career he is just departed from london london irish and is about to take up a job at canterbury we talk about that we talk about the unfortunate season london irish had last year But most importantly, Glenn comes across as an incredibly knowledgeable and incredibly conscientious coach. One of the most interesting interviews I've had by a long way, just for the sheer depth that he goes into his topics. So, without waiting any further, this is my interview with Glenn Delaney. I hope you enjoy it. How are you, Glenn? Very good, thanks. Just uh, for full disclosure, this is actually our second attempt because the first attempt, I uh, first attempt, I didn't actually press record. So uh, thank you for your patience. No, it's uh, it's Groundhog Day. It's fine. We can we can do it again. Not a problem at all. So you've been coaching your son's team this afternoon. Yeah, um, bit of downtime there. It's sort of nice to connect up with the kids and you know uh, help them out at school. And um, yeah, but I, I think coaching sort of a group of eleven-year-olds is. Probably the hardest challenge known to man. Um, it's a, a very different skill uh, coaching yes. kids that is to coaching adults. Yes, uh, they're very hard to keep. It's very hard to keep their attention for more than two or three minutes. I find, and the best thing to do is don't let them talk. Just keep them working. Oh, the, yeah! I just ran them today and uh, yeah, tired them out as, as quick as I could. But uh, no, they're great fun. They're full of energy and enthusiasm. But um, you know, I've got a lot of respect for the teachers and the coaches who work at that age group, it's, uh, it's tough. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's something I'm, you know, not being able to swear at children is, 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 a, <laughs> is a skill. That's for sure. Yes, absolutely. Well, talking of skills, it looks like you've picked up another one currently working with BT sport. Has that made you reconsider your, uh, decision to get a real job back in the world of rugby? Well, it's been great really since I've been, um, away from coaching a team. It's, you know, the guys there are fantastic. They, they're unbelievably professional and, yeah. and learning new skills has been been great fun it's uh it's certainly not my my world but uh i have really enjoyed it and um you know it, uh, it's a different perspective but it's kept me very close to to the game and the action and um you know it's uh, uh not something i've really considered getting out of coaching full-time i think i've i've probably got a face for radio so um, <laughs> the, the tv guys will probably be pretty happy i'm i'm away from there or as we call it here a face for podcasting oh there you go <laughs> Yeah, I think you're the only coach on that staff, actually. Thinking about oh, it, really? yeah, I think so because you know you got uh, you got Ugu there, Flats, Austin. Yeah, you're the only coach, so uh, you give a bit of a unique perspective to the viewer. Yeah, I think maybe it, it, it works, and and they're able to ask questions on tactically in a game and technically, you know, where you're at and what you what you're thinking and what the messages would be, and yeah, just little bits that could be could be of interest and. You know, I've, it's been it's been really gratifying actually that um, that people have been interested in it. It sort of takes a, a bit of getting your head around. And you sort of think, well, why would anyone really be interested in that? But you know, if it gives them a different angle, a different way of understanding the game, and and uh, a little bit of insight into you know the life of a coach, you know, it, uh, it'll probably put everyone who wants to be a coach off it because they figure out that uh, that's why 
um, we tend to look about 20 years older than we are. It is interesting, actually. I've, I'm lucky enough to sit close enough to some of the coaches at Sale Shocks, and I'm always fascinated to find out what the messages are. Because one thing which surprises mm. me more than anything else is actually how simple the messages are. Yeah, it's um, you know when the, when the game's going, you've got to really understand that the players are going through an enormous amount of physical work firstly, so they're, they're tired, exhausted, they're they're on the edge, and then you've got all the emotional sort of energy that gets burnt up in a in a contest as well. And you know, rugby's a, a, a quite a unique sport. You know, you've you've got that that mental energy, that that sort of um, the tiring that comes from thinking and trying to think clearly when you're absolutely knackered and. You know, it's a it's a real challenge, but the only thing you can really do when you're helping them is to give it really simple messages that can be understood quickly. And most of those messages will tailor back to the game plan for the week anyway. And you know what you find yourself doing is initially when a game starts, trying to prove some of the analysis that you've done is actually correct. Yeah. And um, you know, checking off that you know what you've been thinking about is actually what's going to happen. And um, otherwise, it's uh, it's 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 quite difficult. I can imagine that consistency is very important, actually. Oh, entirely. And, um, you know, look, most sides tend to be probably 80% consistent with what they do from week to week, and then there'll be 20% that changes depending on the opposition, um, whether all those things play a huge factor. But um, the reality is most teams have their traits. And, you know, when you've coached a club or, you know, working against clubs who have been coached by the same person for a long time, you, you can get a real good feel to it. The, the more challenging ones are when there's new coaches turn up and, and they change their philosophy and direction and they start implementing new ideas and, you know that's where uh, where our analysts they really earn their earn their corn by breaking teams down and trying to figure out what they're doing. Oh, so you find a you find playing against a coach who you've never played against before far more far more challenging then? Yeah, you know what you, what you find with um, you know, I guess stereotypically if you you know you play against someone like Dimes up at Sale, then you know that they're going to kick the front door down with some drives and you know they're going to be pretty direct in the midfield and um, you know you get a, a feel for a team. Um, when that changes, and particularly from Northern Hemisphere to Southern Hemisphere coaches, there tends to be a big shift in, um, I guess, the philosophy of what they're trying to achieve. So, you know, New Zealand coaches tend to play probably the width a bit more. So if mm. you look at Leicester um, with Darren Major, they're, they're, they're playing a little bit more wide-wide, um, whereas the, the guys who are a bit more entrenched up here tend to tend to think sort of drive, scrum, um, territory first. And, you know, they're, they're equally challenging styles to to play against and um, you've got to be ready for everything. Just a quick one on that. I heard a theory the other day from, I can't remember, another commentary team and they were saying something along the lines that sometimes New Zealand coaches, because they're so spoilt for choice with talent and skills in New Zealand, they tend to dumb down their game plans when they come over here. Do you think there's some truth in that? Well, you have to really um, look at the context. So, you know, when you're going to coach a team, you've really got to look at what you've got in front of you. So what skill sets do you have? What ability, what what capacity to learn, and that's you've got to make that assessment fairly quick before you start leading them down a direction of well, this is how we're going to play. Mm. Um, Everything really comes down to what what you can actually do and do well. So you know, whereas you know some players in New Zealand they, they have a highly skilled game, but the big difference for me in, in New Zealand uh, between New Zealand and here really is that kids in New Zealand grow up with a ball in their hands, and kids in in, in this part of the world grow up with a ball at their feet. Yeah, so. You know, in the same breath, uh, you, you try and get a group of kids from New Zealand playing football. Um, it's a bit of a different uh, different look to it. And uh, certainly in, <laughs> yeah. in training, training when I've played, you know, we used to do the old Northern Hemisphere v the Southern Hemisphere in a game of football as a breakout for from our rugby training. And, 
I was always on a team that really didn't have a clue, and uh, it was coming off the shin more often than not, and it wasn't very, very pretty at all. Yeah, well, we did the same thing in university. We had guys from private school playing football against lads from state school, and the guys who just didn't play football growing up, it, it looks horrendous, absolutely horrendous. Oh, that's it, and, uh, you know, it, it really is quite uh, quite strange sort of sensation, but that's probably the easiest way for me to understand Um you know, having grown up playing touch rugby, cricket, basketball, netball, everything's all—it's all hand. Yeah. Whereas, you know, here, I mean, I've got—I've got two sons, and both of them are far better footballers than I'll ever ever have been in my life. Well, we'll get back to Southern Hemisphere rugby in a minute, uh, but I just wanted to look at your journey into rugby because you're about to take mm. over a club, which I don't think it's an exaggeration to say has shaped rugby through its contribution to. Canterbury Crusaders and from Canterbury Crusaders up into the All Blacks. Can you just give me a bit of background as to how you got to this point? Yeah, I think you know the the jobs jobs come up sort of every every now and then. You, you can never really plan for when an opportunity might present itself. And um, you know, with Canterbury, uh, Todd Blackett has moved on from um, from the Crusaders. He's, he's done run that that uh, that franchise for eight years, so he's now at Bath. Um, Scott Robertson had been running the Canterbury team. Um, so he's now stepped into where Todd was, and they were looking for for something I think maybe a little bit different. And um, you know, I think they really wanted to challenge what they were doing internally and broaden the nor- the normal look. Because ordinarily, within Canterbury and Crusaders rugby, it's always been people have either played for you know they've played for the for the franchise. That's that's pretty much it. Yeah. So this is um, I guess one of the first forays for them to go outside of that and bring someone in. Now it's a it's a bit of a I guess a, a softer look because I'm from there. I know the people there. I was uh, I played rugby there from age five, so I'd gone through the Canterbury system as a player, and then um, I'd moved on overseas when I was sort of nineteen, twenty, and uh, and and went to Japan and did some other fun stuff. But um, because I'm originally from there, I think it was an easier sell for them to look. You know, this guy's been here; he understands us. But actually, he's been away and got a lot of other experience, which we think we find quite useful. So. Um, I guess that's one of the reasons why um, why they went and, uh, and appointed me for for the job. But um, it's very exciting, and uh, you know, uh, Canterbury have won the title uh, in New Zealand eight of the last nine years, which is um, yeah. fairly daunting in, in the same breath. So, so uh, it's a it's a bit of a challenge. How come you left New Zealand so young? Well, I was player. I, I got an opportunity to go up to Japan when I was when I was nineteen, and um, that was before the game game went professional. So they were playing corporate rugby up there. So effectively, you worked for the uh, for the company and got paid. Uh, for your job, not for your rugby in those days, but every all, all these companies had uh, had a rugby team in them. So I effectively um, worked in the administration department, but played for the rugby team and got paid for it. So um, it was a bit of a bit of a quirk. And then the game obviously went professional in '95, '96 around that time, and uh, I just happened to be, I guess, in the right place at the right time, and um, you know was able to make a career out of out of playing rugby professionally. Amazing. So, uh, what was your job in your Japanese co- Japanese company then? Well, I don't I don't quite know what my job really was. I don't think <laughs> they did either. But um, yeah, in the in the group admin department, the key thing they did was they you know they put us through language school and all that stuff. So you know, having to learn the language was a key part of what we're doing. But the co- the company I was in was a construction company. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd, I'd probably be more used to them on a building site, to be fair, in those days. But I was in the uh, in the main office and. Um, Oh, look, I had a boss who was really uh, empathetic to the fact that I didn't really have a lot of uh, business skills, and he sort of showed me a few things. And uh, uh, I guess he, he put up with me almost cluttering the office up, just sort of loitering around and doing little jobs here, there, and everywhere. But um, 
you know, it was the first year was harder because we, you know, we had to be in the office the whole time and um, actually looking like we were doing something, and, and that was quite tough. But uh, once rugby went professional, then you know, I guess the, it was almost like we didn't have to be in the office because uh, we didn't really need to be. So I could get on and just train full time, which um, which was a different way of looking at it. But uh, it was a great experience and you know, one one that I really enjoyed. Have you been based in England ever since then? Yeah, I've um, I came over here in '97. Um, so you know, got married up here, wife's from from this part of the world. So you know, we've been here since uh, since then. So 19 years of of playing and coaching, and um, you know, really enjoying it. Excellent. Now, when you're a coach at say a London Irish, you mm. you kind of land there, and you can pretty much implement the structures you want and the style of play that you want. Is that going to be the same with Canterbury? Because I assume that the Crusaders are going to want Canterbury to play a certain way, and I assume the All Blacks are going to want Crusaders to play a certain way. Is that a fair analysis? Yeah, I think there's there's a different way of looking at rugby in um, in New Zealand to here. Now, the game when the game went professional, um, the unions in New Zealand, South Africa, and Australia effectively bought control. So all the contracting heads through to the New Zealand Rugby Football Union. So there is cohesion right the way through. So you get everyone supporting the program. So. Um, you know, there's a lot of a uh, lot of interaction from Steve Hansen and his team through the whole program, Super Rugby, Provincial Rugby, um, everything sort of points in that direction. Which, uh, in in this country here, the, the clubs individually own own the rights to their game, and uh, there's no real direct responsibility to the England team. So therefore, we had to have this bargaining um, where player release was negotiated, and then they, you know, the RFU paid for that. And um, it's always a little bit more problematic. But um, you know, I guess. Everything in New Zealand points towards uh, Team Black, I suppose, is probably the easiest way to describe it, and um, everyone's on the same page. So, um, yeah, there's a, there is a lot of, um, I guess, um, desire for those key All Blacks. And if you look at Canterbury, you know, we've got Kieran Reid in there and yeah. um, in the past, McCaw and Carter. So, you know, those guys are pretty influential with how the All Blacks play, and, of course, they have a big influence about how um, Canterbury and the Crusaders play. So, um, you know, yeah, there is, there is... A strong allegiance towards that. Obviously, you've got your own responsibility to play the game as you see fit. And um, you know, for me, the the key thing is going down there and um, learning about more about how they play things on their side of the uh, of, of the world rather than what I've been used to up here. So this team is clearly going to be a mix between what you've learned in London Irish and what Canterbury are hoping to develop through their own system. Uh, will they also be asking you to do things like develop different players? Say, if Canterbury need a few more fly halves for the Crusaders. You're gonna to have to go out and find a few more fly halves. Well, you've got the we've got our academy, um, in the Crusaders Academy, which uh, is part of the the one organisation. So if I look at if I look at the way that we're structured down there, the mm. Canterbury and the Crusaders, we all work in one building. Um, the Crusaders coaches are in the office next door to me. Um, there's there's a lot of shared resource in terms of the support staff, so it's pretty pretty cohesive. Um, the vast majority of my team are Crusader players. I've got also, some guys in the Highlanders and the Hurricanes, and uh, got and Dominic Bird plays for the Chiefs, but then oh, comes really? back and plays for Canterbury. So, um, the majority of the players are going to be Crusader guys. Now, the other thing that's very different about rugby down there is you don't get the preseason that we would here. So, normally we'd have an eight to ten week preseason here. Um, I'll probably have two weeks where I get the players. Um, so, you can't really go and start trying to reinvent the wheel and. The other part of it, going into a, a pretty successful program, is is making sure that there's continuity with the things that are working. There are things that are, I'm going to want to 
look at and think, well, maybe we could just look in this direction. But um, you've got to be careful about how much uh, you want to try and change and how much you want to try and you know, modify because not having a lot of time means that if you did try and do it, it might not work out as well yeah. as sticking with what they're already doing. That's fascinating. Now, you're going to have to excuse my ignorance because I'm not entirely clear on a few things. Um, you've only got two weeks with your players. Yeah, the the way they work is that, that Super Rugby runs pretty much to, um, I guess, the end of July, start of August. And, yeah. and the provincial championship starts in August and heads through to October. So um, the other the other anomaly that we've got in Canterbury is we hold the Renfrewley Shield, which is a, a challenge shield. Um, so effectively, we have to have shield challenges where a team comes and if they beat you, then they take it. If they draw, <laughs> if the game's a draw or you win, you keep it. And that's on the line probably six times a year. So we have uh, we have a Renfield Shield Challenge on the 21st of June, which is in that in the Super Rugby break, which is around about the time that the Lions Tour sort of oh, is, wow. is, is is getting into gear. So um, we've got to deal with that competition as well. So we'll get some players out from that, but. Um, you know, for the most part, uh, the competitions are, are, are run that way. They have been for, forever, so it's something I'm going to have to get used to. Well, I'm sure there's going to be some New Zealand listeners wondering why I'm asking such basic questions, but I do need to work this out. I always assumed Canterbury players played for Canterbury Crusaders. So how do you have guys playing for other Super Rugby teams? And how do the Super Rugby teams split up the provincial players? Well, I think the way, the way it works is that um, the... The, the franchises will have a roster and then um, they'll, they'll, for the most part, pick players or contract players that are with their region. So um, they'll get those guys that are that they want that are local and then they can go into a draft system and start pulling guys in. So if you look oh, at Canterbury nice. as one example, Dominic Bird um, is a second rower who's been in the All Blacks. He's, um, he's a fantastic player. Um, Canterbury have got uh, Luke Romano and uh, Sam Whitelock uh, who are pretty good players as well and also Scott Barrett who's uh, just broken through on the all-back tour. So yeah. when you start looking at the depth of resource that Canterbury has, it's, it's maybe a little bit overloaded in the second row department. So by virtue of that, the Chiefs needed a second row. Um, so when Matt Simons, um, who was playing for Canterbury in the provincial championship, he, was, he wasn't picked up by the Crusaders. So therefore the, the Chiefs signed him. So then when he left the Chiefs to come to London Irish, Chiefs needed a lock. So they went and got Dominic Bird, who was playing for Canterbury in the Crusaders previously, but didn't pick up a roster spot um, for them. So uh, if, if sides need players, they can go outside of the region. Now, Canterbury has always been probably one of the, the biggest sort of growth growth bags for, for players. So there's yeah. a lot of talent there that um, other other provinces are after, and the structures in the academy uh, are excellent, and the guys have been bringing through players at a phenomenal rate. So um, it's always been a little bit of a place for other provinces and franchises to um, to go shopping in. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um now, with Canterbury, you've obviously got a situation where you play all your games with your provincial squad, but towards the end of the season, when you get to the business end, you start having to incorporate more senior players. Uh, back in the past, it would be a Reed or a Carter or a McCaw. How do you handle that as a coach? It's really hard. It's not an easy thing, and um, you know that's the conversation that I've, I've been having, and you know, guys like Matt Todd, who's played on the All Black Tour, he had a couple of games last year, and um, you know, they come in for games, and then you get times when the All Blacks will have a training camp, and then they'll break out, and Steve will, will want players to get game time. So um, he, could, he could get on the phone and go, you know, look, I want this guy to play, so can you give him a run? And uh, you know, pretty much just like, yeah, that's fine. Um, but you've got to have an environment that can support that. 
And as long as all the players and, and the staff are all aware that, you know, there is a high purpose to what we're doing. And ultimately, if we're all pointed in the same direction for the national side to, to be successful, then, um, you know, you should embrace those those sorts of challenges. It's not an easy thing when you've had a, a lad who's, who's played week in, week out and done a great job and then, you know, he gets replaced because, um, you know, you get an all-back comeback who needs needs to play. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, those guys are, are all-blacks for a reason. They're the best players in the country. And, uh, you know, as a coach, you always want the best players playing. But you've got to have a, um, a, a team environment that can support that so that when those things happen, they don't become big disruptions. I see. Now, if I'm a Canterbury fan, what would you say I'm likely to get from a team coached by Glenn Delaney? Well, it'll, it'll, philosophically, I've always I've always liked to play um, use the full width of the pitch, which I've managed to do over years now. I've, I, I like driving uh, lineouts, always have, and uh, I've always used them from a point of view that they actually shorten the defensive line. So, you know, when I when I say I like to drive, I do for a purpose that I want to get to create space for the outside. So I'm always looking to provide an opportunity for an outside back to to have a go. And um, you know, I still believe rugby should be played that way, but. What I've what I've learned from here is is there's, there's probably a a greater reliance on set piece and uh, and defence. So, you know, if I can come and add little bits perhaps on that side and maintain the attacking flair because Canterbury have had the best attack in that competition for a for a long time and the defence has has been near enough the best as well. But I think there's some areas that maybe we can um, we can work on that uh, that we do pretty well up here. But you know, again, everything's got to be done in um, in co- cohesion with with the players, and you know, there's no point in coming with an idea that they simply don't want to do. Okay. Um, you got to take take them along with you. Now, one of the things you didn't mention, and I think it's fair to say you're very good at this, is your talent at recruiting. I'm going to list a couple of names of some players here: Parr, Hall, Pe- uh, Petrus, Calamaphoni, Strether, Molnar, Crane. In other words, you've got a very good track record of spotting premiership talent in the championship. Can you just talk to me about a couple of those players, how you came across them, and most importantly, what you saw in them that made you think that that player was right for the step up? Oh, I think the um, the one thing you look at is, is the, the men and what sort of character they are. And uh, if they're good people um, that can play, then you're going to get huge value in you know, I, I was very fortunate that um, the project that we, we, we had with Nottingham, I, I did eight years there, and um, we had some fantastic players that managed to come through, and they all beca- they all became best best friends, and they're still mates now, and uh, it's it's really gratifying that those guys are still have a reason to, to be in touch because they're mates, and um, you know, I guess it's it's funny you sort of you cast your net wide, and um, you know, there's been people that I've I've always trusted and we've spoken and. A lot of people have understood what what I believe in in, in terms of rugby players and, and giving guys a chance. And you know, we had guys like you know Tim Strether is a great example of a lad who was playing university rugby at Nottingham. He'd been through Worcester's academy and got cast off. And um, Craig Hammond, who was our, our club captain, was was coaching the uni team. And uh, he said, "I come down and have a look. We have got this kid who looks like he goes all right." And uh, I went I went had a look at Tim, and I was like, "Oh, he goes all right, all right. That's he goes really good." <laughs> So uh, we, we we had him in, and uh, Tim Blessing was uh, I think first year, and he got Player of the Year, uh, and he was getting about a hundred quid a game because uh, he's just a student. So um, you know, it was it was lovely to see someone like Tim fulfil his career when it had sort of been derailed, and he thought probably his chance for professional rugby was lost, and then he went on to Saracens and has done done good things there. But um, there's a lot of those those nice stories of of those lads, and um, it was great to come to Irish and then bring Matt Parr and Nick Rouse down. Um, yeah, who'd spent a lot of time with me, and um, those guys were outstanding for London Irish. And really, I think um, 
you know, I saw I saw Parry at the weekend up at the uh, at the Leicester game. He's the Eastern Sea coach there now, and uh, you know he he really fulfilled his career. He he was the starting loose here for London Irish and uh, um, did a fantastic job for us. And you know, Nick Rath similarly, you know, a huge amount of Championship rugby and uh, a half season for sale, but probably got all the fulfilment of playing at the highest level and was paid a compliment by um, the club captain George Skivington when he got the Players Player of the Year, and that. George said, I don't know how this guy hasn't played 10 years and in 250 games in the Premiership. Yeah. It just beggars belief. No, I just think it's sometimes you, you spend your time, you know, people spend their time looking at what players can't do. And um, my view's always been, let's look at what they can do. And, um, if they're good people, then um, good things tend to happen. And, you know, I've just been uh, been really fortunate. There's been a lot of good guys around that I've, uh, I've had the pleasure of coaching. Yeah, well, in the case of Nick Rouse, he was unlucky to be at sale when he had a coach that really liked him, and then they had a bit of a turnaround. But when um, Nick was released from Sale, he was the club's second highest tackler, and his work rate was just immense. Oh, it was frightening, and um, you know, it was a it was a great time actually. I um, I drove up from Nottingham to watch his first game. He sort of gave me a ring and said, "You know, you want to come up?" I said, "Love to." So I got in the car with a lad named Sam Raven who was playing with us as well, and. We did a five-hour road trip up to watch Nick's first game in the Premiership, and um, he looked at absolutely at home. And you know, he's one of these guys that he was uh, unbelievable work rate and work ethic. He didn't look like an athlete, <laughs> um, and uh, we often joke about it. But uh, you know, as I say, it, it wasn't what you saw; it was what he did. And when you know, he basically um, reset the boundaries for what work rate was. And certainly, at London Irish, you know, I had guys there who'd been in Premiership clubs for years, and then Nick turned up, and they're like how does he do this? And uh, it just became a standing joke that, you know, we used to have uh, the internal awards each week for, you know, the try of the week and the, the best player, you know, that kind of thing. And then we had a, we had the builder's uh, yellow helmet for the, for the work, <laughs> work of the week, the work rate. It was basically Rass just wore it the whole year because no one could get near it. That's and, absolutely brilliant. You know, you know, I used to say that, you know, when, um, when, when people like Nick Rouse functioned and, and Matt Parr functioned, they, they didn't do things that, that stood out to the to the the average the average watcher who was looking for something a bit more exciting. But if they weren't playing, the team didn't function. Excellent. So back to the recruitment side then. How do you keep a tab on all these players that you want, and what systems do you have in place to make sure that the right player is available should you need them in the future? Uh, it's a it's a pretty broad network, and the agency market's pretty well evolved. So. Firstly, you've got to have really good relationships with the um, with the, the key agencies, and actually, you know, there's probably about 50, 55 agents that are genuinely active in the market, and um, you've got some of the very, very biggest agencies that have got a number of players, and then you've got guys that have got one or two, and they're equally as important because when you're profiling a team, you look at the contract cycle and determine, you know, whether these these players are, you know, where you're at at the moment when the contracts are finishing, and actually, you you look at a player that you're recruiting and. You know, we we pull guys in like Ben Frankson and um, yeah, Ben's on a three-year deal. So therefore, you've got a tight head that that reaches out three years in advance. So then you have a decision to make around about uh, probably the end of the season for in a year's time as to you know does Ben go again or do you has someone pushed through and um, you're constantly juggling the the form of of the player, the value of the player, which you know is 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 where obviously the budget gets determined from, but um, the value of the player against how they're playing and. Um, you're having to make those those decisions constantly, and uh, it's not an exact science, but you have to have a bit of feel for it, and also a bit of feel for the people, the person, what's driving the player. Uh, you work with your coaching team to see, you know, has the player got capacity to learn? 
are they are they at the peak of their powers? And probably the one thing that I that I have learned over the, the with recruitment is that um, sometimes it's it's better for the team and the club to let a player go a year earlier rather yeah. than keeping them a year longer. And um, you know you learn that the hard way sometimes, but um, that that seems to be a pretty good methodology. Yeah, and I also think with the older players as well, it's going to become more and more important, particularly if you're a big club and you're up against the cap, that you will be releasing these players a year earlier just for the fact that it's going to be a massive financial burden against the amount of money which you have available. Yeah, it's always tough. You know, players get to a point where their value steadily increases and then, you know, they're at the peak of their powers and then, you know, sometimes when age kicks in, sometimes, you know, the injuries have, a, have an effect and, you know, there's a lot of, lot of things that can determine that a player might start to not necessarily perform as well and lose a bit of form and perhaps lose their place. But, you know, the, the hard thing is really when, you know, the, the, the player's expectations of salary have been gradually increasing and then it gets to a point where you're thinking, actually, that probably needs to decrease and uh, and, and that's quite a hard conversation to have. But, oh, I bet it's really um, tough, actually. You know, if, uh, if if you can look at, you know, likes of Saracens who do it really, really well, they, they let players move on and, and go to France. So Chris Ashton's going down to France uh, at the end of the season and uh, David Strittle was allowed to go from his contract early because... He got a big offer, and, and the club sees that that's important to the player in terms of player providing for the family and, and his well-being. But you know they've they've had the player for the best of his years, and then that player gets to go on and um and, and enjoy you know making a living to provide for the family. Yeah, you're absolutely right there. I can only imagine how important that aspect of the job is. Let's just uh, rewind a little bit. Obviously, last season wasn't the best for you. Uh, London Irish got relegated. Can you just give me uh, a few of your thoughts about that season? Yeah, it was a, it was a tough year. Look, you know, um, it wasn't what we we wanted or, or planned for, or or you know, it wasn't what any of us wanted. And the club's now actually doing really well in the championship, winning winning a lot of games and looking pretty much odds on to come straight back, which is fantastic. But mm-hmm. Look, it was pretty tough, and um, you know Tom Coventry came up from uh, from the Chiefs and um, set about working with uh, a couple of other coaches that came up from New Zealand as well. And um, you know, at the end of the day, the what we did on the pitch just didn't provide enough wins and enough results. And you know, it's a results business. We had a an unbelievable attrition rate. Our injury level was was ridiculous. And you know, we we're talking about Nick Rouse earlier, but uh, Nick got a, a, another shoulder injury, which meant he near, near enough didn't play. But not only did we lose him, we lost George Skivington, the club captain, who ended up retiring at the end of the year as well. So, mm. you know, when you're losing key guys in key positions, it's very, very difficult. And, uh, you know, that coupled with our form meant that uh, we were on the back foot and um, we got off, to, got off to a pretty bad start and, you know, didn't really get any traction in the league. And um, at the end of the day, uh, we were the worst worst team in the league on, uh, on the scoreboard and on the table, and uh, that's why you get relegated. Mm. When you're in a situation like that and you feel things are going against you, is there ever a time or was there a time last season where you could pinpoint it and say, that was the time where I felt we were really, really in trouble? Well, we have conversations you know, all the time and um, you know, we had coaches that were learning about the league in the same breath and you know, trying, to, trying to sort of balance that all out with the injuries and there was so much happening um, mm. around us that I guess we didn't necessarily have a clear defined way of how we were trying to play and mm. that kept modifying. So that, that was the real difficulty was that with no real um, ability to settle a team down and get a consistent selection for, for one reason or another and an injury being a significant part of that, it just meant that the, the style of rugby that 
um, we were playing, we, we weren't really able to develop that and, and, and make it as consistent as it needs to be. And, you know, the Premiership is a very, very tough competition, arguably the toughest competition in the world because the yeah. players here are some of the best. And, um, you know, if you're not consistent, then you can end up losing games fairly closely and, and all of a sudden it just gets away from you. And, you know, you've seen that this year. You know, Bristol are in a position where they've not won a lot of rugby this year. And, you know, and then in the same in the same breath, uh, Worcester have won one game and drawn two. And they're just above it. And, you know, all teams are striving for that consistency that gives them a chance to get a run of two, three games to, to build confidence. And, you know, we, we just never never managed to do that last year. What would you have done differently last year if, you know, if you could have a redo? It's pretty hard to say, really. I guess um, that long pre-season was something that, um, you know, we, we thought might have actually helped us, but maybe it was a bit of a hindrance. We had spent so much time um, trying to augment what we were doing and, 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 and sort of put change in. I think maybe one thing would have been to take a, a little bit more of what we did the year before into that season. But, um, you know, with, with, a, with a new coaching staff coming in that had a really clear way of, what, the way they wanted to play, um, we we had to support that, and um, we did support it. And you know, I guess uh, hindsight's you know it's easy to easy to throw throw bricks at something that's happened yeah. in the past. But maybe the one thing would have been to have perhaps kept a little bit more of what we were doing the year previously. Yeah, evolution rather than revolution. Yeah, I think so, and uh, and I think the most successful sides tend to just evolve from season to season and. You know, there's a really good example this year of um, you know Todd Blackadder and Tavai Matson coming into Bath, and you know I've spoken to those guys before before they got here, and um, the first thing that Todd did was he's watched the entire league, and they effectively came in and said, well, let's just not change anything, let's just work on the people and the culture because you know Toby Booth is an outstanding coach, Darren Edwards is an outstanding coach, both those guys are there running preseason and doing a great job, so let's let's observe before we start modifying and changing. And, um, yeah, that's a really good example of how it can work. It's, it's interesting you say that because uh, anyone who listens to any of my other podcasts knows that I, I do occasionally talk a little bit about culture. And I kind of see some of, uh, quite a lot of it, actually, has been a little bit of a red herring. Uh, of the two things, culture versus, you know, the, the, you know, the actual systems and, you know, the way that, the way that, you, way that you want to play... Which which do you put the priority on? Oh, it's definitely culture. I think the um, you know if you look at Exeter as an example, they're a team that Rob Rob Baxter runs, um, and you know effectively they are a team that's built out of a of a way of behaving and what's acceptable and how you behave and what 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 that can mean is that you know the sum of your your parts can become greater than those individual parts collectively, and um, you know that's what you need to have a, a team is. You know, a team game, it sort of does what it says on the cakes and you have to have the best team, not the best group of individuals. Yeah. So the way the way you get the best out of a group of individuals is you turn them into a team. You have a culture that supports that, which drives behaviours and creates identity and then that, that therefore creates belonging and purpose. And once you've got belonging and purpose, then it's really powerful and people end up working really hard because they're clear with what their role is. They know what their, their expectations are. They know how they... Are required to behave, and you know ultimately they choose to behave that way because it conforms to the norm of of the group. So that's 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 sort of the, the nuts for me. If you get that culture right, anything's possible. So, is there anything that you've done as a coach um, involving culture and you know, creating that atmosphere 
that you're particularly proud of and something which which you'll probably replicate again when you go to Canterbury? Just you know, um, just think small. Yeah, the, the the key thing you have to do with any new group is you've got to create a shared experience because uh, it, from one season to the next, a team is fundamentally different, and that can be because there's only one person has changed, but because there's one person different from the year previously, the dynamic changes. So what you have to do is go and find uh, ways and opportunities of getting that group away from every distraction or, or away on their own and allowing them to, to get to know each other. Mm-hmm. And I've always used camps going away on a, a week-long tour or finding something interesting to do. And one thing that one thing we did do was uh, uh, a few years ago now, we went to um, the helicopter training school at Shawbury, which is Triforce's um place where you learn how to fly helicopters and um they signed over the um the flight simulator to the squad so everyone got taught how to fly a helicopter Excellent. in one day and all of a sudden everyone's an expert aren't they you know we've got guys <laughs> like luke luke sheriff uh, from oxford talking himself up as the next blooming uh, great uh, helicopter pilot and uh, you know everyone's got a story of oh i crashed mine and, and all of a sudden you create that shared experience that's that's common to that group so once you've got that coat hook of of commonality that they can talk about that's only particular to them, then that team, the, the bonds start to grow. And, uh, you know, little things like that I find really important. And, you know, not being afraid of having a few beers and letting letting men be men and discover discover what it's like when you have a few beers with someone. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, these guys are relying on each other in the middle of a, you know, a little bit like a gladiatorial theatre. You know, they're, they're taking on an opposition it's 15 guys on 15 guys wearing the same the same colours and they're going to physically, mentally and emotionally wear themselves out trying to win a game. And, you know, it's 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 pretty sort of, uh, I guess, basic in that premise. It's almost you need your friends around you and you need to know that you can trust them. Mm. And in order to do that, you've got to go through some experiences outside that uh, that will build the bonds. Yeah, I mean, I guess the problem I have with the whole culture thing, and you alluded to it before, is the gladiatorial nature of rugby. You're constantly telling these players to be good citizens, to you know, be nice to everyone, and that's all good. But actually, on a Saturday, you want very hard, very nasty men when they go over the whitewash. And sometimes I think it's very hard to have one without the other. And it's almost like rugby's trying to overcompensate a, li- a little bit for what it really is. Mm. It's not normal at all, and uh, you know, it's it's a funny one really because um, you know often you you want these guys to, to take over the over the whitewash and become ferocious sort of physical um, physical beasts, and sometimes you know that behaviour type can spill into yes. into life outside of the the game, and um, you know it's it's a hard thing to control, and you know really you've got to have a team that's supportive enough to understand people well enough to know what are the pressure points that that you know, you know, can make someone perhaps exhibit a little bit of behaviour that you're not quite looking for. And um, I think you've got to be really careful. You can't have it both ways. You can't have this huge expectation that you put players out there and that they'll tear into the opposition and physically dominate, and then they'll be complete uh, gentlemen off the pitch um, with a cup of tea in their hands. Now, you'd love that to be the case, uh, but sometimes it's, it's perhaps not. And, uh, you know, you've just got to, got to put an environment around people where, um, where they can be, you know, supported and looked after because, um, you know, it's a tough enough game as it is. And if, you know, if, if you've got those expectations on people to, to, to behave in a certain way on the pitch, um, you've got to support them off the pitch equally. Well, talking of shared experiences and trips, 
What was your experience of the international series in New York like? Oh, it's great! What a what a fantastic week we um, we trained out at the, at the New York Jets facility out in Morristown, and uh, it was it was phenomenal. It was a a, a great week, um, really well executed. We had forty and a half thousand people at the stadium, and um, you know, into Times Square for a, a big promo with Citizen, the sponsors, um, on the Thursday. But yeah, uh, yeah it was great, and uh, it was it was nice to get away and actually um, the team the team got really tight and uh, the only downer on that week was we didn't win the game which um, you know we were at a good position at halftime we were leading and uh, we had a, a little a little mis- mishap in the, in the second half where yeah, yeah. Uh, they so scored the, a try which took the game away from us what was the try again it was something really I seem to remember it being really unfortunate yeah, it was a it was a charge down ricochet, which yeah. um, I think Nick, Nick Tompkins picked it up and ran it in, which uh, you know it was just just from a nothing really. It was from a, a clearance kick that got hit off two people, and I think Tompkins was standing in what would ordinarily be an offside position, but because the board ricocheted, he was onside. So um, that was sort of that sort of summed up our our season really random acts like that. Yeah, it was quite a surreal experience actually because. Um, w- w- me and my colleagues from the other podcast, we we followed the team over, and it was just weird to think that you know on an international weekend when the game well, Saracens London Irish would probably get no traction what- whatsoever by any of the broadcasters. Uh, you guys are up in the Irish consulate and uh, talking to- talking to diplomats and all sorts of people. Oh well, this uh, was just thoroughly our comfort zone. We we love doing that, you know. It's. <laughs> It's uh, it was it was nice, you know. With the, we did the Irish embassy, we did the uh, the British consulate. Um, we had a, a whole heap of sponsors and supporters that were just gagging for for a rugby game in New York of that that standard. And um, I think it's something that over time will continue to grow. And um, I'm sure and I hope that uh, that London Irish will be involved again because I think London Irish is really the club that can can probably um, support that game and make it make it a huge success because of, um, the, I guess, the heritage of Irish people having settled on that coast of the States. And, you know, the, the number of people who came out for it and, and caught up with us during the week, that was, uh, it was fantastic. That's tremendous, yeah. OK, last question. You're uniquely placed to talk about relegation because, of course, with Nottingham, you were trying to achieve promotion. With London Irish, you were trying to avoid relegation. And now you're going to Canterbury, which doesn't suffer promotion or relegation, um, which do you think is the best system and which do you think is better for rugby? Well, it's certainly sacrosanct in, in sport over here. And, uh, you know, you look at football, there's promotion and relegation. It happens everywhere. It's, it's very much a part of the sporting landscape in, in this part of the world. Um, you're right, there's no none of that in the, in the Southern Hemisphere and, uh, you know, the, the competition plays accordingly. Now, what, what, what relegation does from a premiership perspective is if you start being drawn into that, then it narrows down how you play and you start playing for, for survival and, and, and results and trying to chip away. Um, when you're playing with, with freedom, players can express themselves and your game really starts to grow and evolve and expand. Um, it's, a, it's a real tough one. I, I genuinely think having worked in, um, in clubs that are both uh, championship and premiership, if you're going to be in the premiership and get promoted, You've got to be ready for it, and we've certainly seen um, you know, London Welsh the last couple of years, and they've got some some challenges at the moment as well. That um, if you're not ready for it, it can really hurt you, and uh, you can get yourself into a lot of financial difficulties. So, um, the one thing that, that that I would suggest goes against the argument in rugby for promotion and relegation is if clubs aren't financially sustainable and 
delve into it, it can be the end of them. And we saw that at the start of professional rugby with the likes of uh, Oral and West Hartlepool, who, who near enough disappeared from, from everywhere purely because yeah. they got involved in professional rugby. And um, that's the reality of it. It's, it's a really grown-up decisions have to be made around it because it is a very costly business. Um, you always want to have the ambition. And I think having the ambition to be promoted says that if there is someone comes along that's got the resources and wants to wants to compete and wants to have a rugby club and develop it and grow it and invest it uh, and make it into something bigger, they should have the opportunity to push through. But I think the criteria for promotion is is really the key for me. And you know, you look at London Irish and, and the championship at the moment, and they're, they're head and shoulders the best side. And uh, why wouldn't they be when their front row is Tom Court, David Pace, and, and Ben Franks? It's, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, ridiculous, actually. Uh, it's, it's not bad. You know, British Lion, England International, two, two, two World Cup winning all back. It's, um, there's not going to be many of those that they're facing. And uh, that's the reality of it. Yeah, actually, I said that that was the last question. This one can be the last question, which is uh, tell me something about this, um, this lad, Joe. I can't say his surname. Cocking a singer. That's the boy. Yeah, he's a phenomenal athlete. He is a big kid. There's, he is he is monstrous. Um, he's a lovely lad. He's uh, he's from a, uh, a British Army family. His dad's a Fijian in the British Army, and um, so he spent a lot his, his whole life up this neck of the woods. And um, he's he's developed a, his game. He's worked very hard with uh, with the academy coaches, with Paul Hodgson particularly. Um, but he's really breaking through and. Uh, he scored a wonder try um, the other week against London Scottish. You know, for for a lad his size, to have the footwork and the deft touches that um, I guess all Fijians are born with, um, it's, he's a real exciting talent, and uh, uh, I'm sure he's destined for uh, for big things. That's excellent, well, Glenn, you've been an absolutely fantastic guest. Uh, fa- fascinating, fascinating chat. Where can we keep up with your progress on social media? Yeah, Twitter, knocking around on that. I, I, I do a little bit on there from time to time, but um, ah, look, you know, the, 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 I'm a little bit mainstream and that I'll read the papers and the like. I'm, I'm starting to get to the handle <laughs> of this uh, social media thing, but uh, no, Twitter's probably the, the best place for, for me. Uh, what's your Twitter handle, please? Glaxo5. Glaxo5, there you go. Yep. Well, best of luck, Glenn, and I'll be keeping a very close eye on your progress in Canterbury. Good man, it's been a pleasure. All right, cheers. Once more, thank you to Glenn for coming on and giving us those insights into both Canterbury and London Irish. Next week, we, well, I can't confirm, but I think we might have someone else from BT Sport. That will be good fun. In the meantime, if you know of anyone that you want me to interview or you've got some ideas, just pop them on a tweet, send them to me, at jbeardmore or at the Rugby Dungeon. And next week we'll have Facebook Live back up, so you can watch it live. Until then, uh, look out for us on Twitter. Uh, Egg Chasers as well will be out twice this week. And, um, yeah, let the boys play. See you now.